think i'm thinking folks are going to be wondering in but i want to get started with the housekeeping so we can give joan the floor in ninety minutes of her presentation i think i know everybody here i'm beth hastings i'm the director of continuing literacy and education here at diamond hitchcock and thank you for coming to this um pretty special session of nursing grand rounds we're pretty happy that joan's been able to join us this morning so um thanks thanks for taking the time out of what i know um are busy days for you both um, and I also want to welcome anyone who is um, viewing this session online. We are, this is being webcast live as well as being recorded, so you can tell folks who were not able to be here, who wanted to be here, they can view the archived session um, after the presentation. <clears throat> In terms of um, housekeeping, a um, couple things. Uh, after the program, you will receive an email from us <coughs> for continuing education with a link to the online evaluation. And it's sort of a new system, so upon completion of the evaluation, your credit will be automatically posted to your online transcript. So you do need to complete the evaluation, but then it's automatic. You don't have that two or three week wait that we used to have in the past. <clears throat> um, and even if you don't need the credit, we do really appreciate your completing the evaluation because your feedback is, is important to us. Um, uh, for those of you who are here, please be sure you signed in. Uh, just outside on the registration table and um, you do need to be present for 80% of the presentation in order to receive credit. And for folks who are viewing online, um, you need to um, contact Judith Langhans, judith.m uh, as in May, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org and you need to let her know that you were present for the session, um, and also during the presentation, if you have questions, if you can send those to her, she'll um, share those with Joan and Joan can respond at the conclusion of her presentation. Um, let's see, uh, so yes, yeah, so if, for folks online, um, we need your name, degree, and zip code uh, in order to, to um, give you um, uh, credit for attending the session. Um, if you need to know how to access your online transcripts, um, for those, uh, let's see, there are instructions right on our website for how to do that. We want you to know that uh, neither Joan nor anyone on the planning committee uh, has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity. Um, there's no conflict of interest regarding this presentation and no one refused to disclose. So I'm really honored to present uh, Dr. Joan Stanley to you all um, this morning. She. Um, she is Senior Director of Education Policy for the Ameri American Association of Colleges of Nursing in DC. She received her BSN from Duke University, her Master's in Nursing and Nurse Practitioner Certification from the University of Maryland at Baltimore and her PhD from the University of Maryland at College Park. Um, she served as AACN's representative to numerous nursing education initiatives. She's provided leadership for the development of the essentials documents which delineate the outcomes for baccalaureate, master's, and DNP uh, practice programs, as well as a many uh, major position statements on a variety of nursing education issues, including RN to BSN, which we're becoming more and more familiar with, uh, the research-focused doctorate, the move of advanced practice nursing to the DNP degree, we have some students, uh, DNP students in the room, and the creation of the role of the clinical nurse leader. She continues to practice as an adult NP at the University of Maryland Medical System. She has presented on a variety of nursing education and practice topics really throughout the country, if not internationally. 
um she her book advanced practice nursing emphasizing common roles is in its third edition today she's going to discuss advanced nursing education laying the foundation for quality patient-centered care i found out earlier this morning that she has new hampshire roots she has a family who sounds like has lived throughout the state she spent summers at newfound lake lake winnipesaukee um so it's practically related <laughs> she left Stowe this morning. She got here in great time. I, I mean, she, you made a wonderful time. I still can't get over it. She was here way before any of us were here. And she actually found Auditorium G without any help. Well, no, I had a few directions, a couple. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Joan to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Thank you, Deb, for that very kind introduction. Um, I am, before I start, I'd like to know a little bit about the audience so I can tailor some of my remarks. I know that we have a few uh, nursing faculty and director of the program from Colby, uh, Sawyer. I'm just curious, is there anyone here that is not a nurse? Ah, okay, great. Um, can I ask you what your, you know, position is or background? Great. Thank you. And you, sir? I've in communications and marketing. You're in communications. Great. Um, I was just asking for those who just uh, walked in if there was anyone here that wasn't a nurse. Okay. Other than the two that just introduced themselves. So the rest, how many are um, faculty at a school of nursing? One, two, three, a few. And then um, the rest of you, are you practicing? Not, not that faculty and everybody else doesn't practice, but is your primary position in a practice uh, position here at Dartmouth or somewhere else? And which of you are DNP students? One? Two. Anyway, congratulations. <laughs> um, okay. <coughs> well, I was asked to come over because I was at uh, the Vermont Hospital Association meeting um, yesterday and presented there and had been asked to really talk about their whole the notion of advancing nursing education and try to, trying to reach the uh, target goal of having 80% of your workforce prepared at the baccalaureate level by 2020, particularly in their in the context of their designing a reformed healthcare system and an integrated healthcare system. So uh, that was originally, and then I was kindly asked to come over here and speak to um, the nurses and others here. Um, so I think that the presentation um, that I'm going to share with you and the information is very relevant for anywhere anybody is practicing, for nursing across the country. The issues that are there, how we're going to reach the goal, and also to provide some background into why it's so important. Um, I think that these are the objectives that I laid out for the, um, the presentation. And I think that what I'm going to do is start talking a little bit about the background. Even if we know and we support the transition to an 80% baccalaureate workforce and talk about the 
increasing, doubling the number of doctorally prepared nurses by the year 2020. And I've added one other um, goal, and that is to increase the percentage with a graduate degree, not just doctoral education, but to increase the percentage that have doctoral uh, graduate preparation. Um, talk a little bit about the background, where we are, um, why that decision was made, that it's very evidence-based, because any of us that are talking about it, I think we need to understand the rationale and be truly committed and be able to not just say we need to get there, but to talk about why, what's going on in the healthcare system and why we're really, why it is so important. Because if we don't make the business case for nursing and why we need to get there, we're not gonna get there. And talk a little bit about also my philosophy about why we can't just focus on the baccalaureate, but why we need to focus on the entire continuum of baccalaureate and graduate nursing education. And then have talk a little bit about some of the barriers and challenges and if some resources and some suggestions and then have a conversation about some of the strategies to actually move this whole, the goals forward and to actually reach our goal. For those of you who may not be familiar with the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, we are located in Washington, D.C. Our members are the baccalaureate and graduate schools of nursing. We have over 760, I believe now, member institutions. And for those of you who may not understand, we do have um, focus on all aspects of the institution. Frequently, I think it's equated that the dean or director of the school represents the school to our association. They do in our... Um, government and our voting and our bylaws. However, we really believe that anybody that's connected with the institution is part of that membership and should have access to any of the resources that we provide. We do faculty, and also there are a number of resources that are available online, including webinars, um, resource materials, toolkits for individuals, uh, both at the baccalaureate, masters, and DNP level and a wide variety of resources that are available to anybody in the public. So the things that I talk about are mostly on our website. We offer conferences. We have probably 10 webinars a month now that are presented, that are offered for a variety. We also have a lot of information now on focusing on graduate uh, students. And anybody that's a graduate student is eligible to join our um, Graduate Nursing Student um, Academy Association. Um, I put this up here first as opposed to talking about our association visit for, I mean vision for our association. This is the vision that our board developed um, about a year or so ago and really endorsed for the profession so that we have a vision not only for our association but for the profession. And I think this reflects really the whole goal of trying to advance nursing education across the continuum and in the profession and why it is so important. <clears throat> so I figured we would start with there because that is our ultimate goal of what we want nursing to be like. I am hoping that all of you are familiar and if you're not you might want to go back and familiarize yourself with some of the reports that I'm going to run through and I'm not going to talk about each one specifically. However, I put them up here so that we're all on the same page and have some background. These reports 
started coming out over a decade ago, probably two decades ago, and really laid the, the found, foundation for our conversation around quality within the healthcare system. The AHA report in our hands, it came out in 2002. The Joint Commission document on healthcare at the crossroads talked about, and I think this was one of the first documents that really said 25% of Sentinel events are related to nursing actions. Now that doesn't mean they didn't have an organizational or a systems issue with it, but they were directly related to nursing events. The IOM report that I know everybody probably in the country heard about because it was in every newspaper reported then that they estimated there were 98,000 uh, unintentional deaths due to errors, medical errors. Uh, and now that number reported has been really raised astronomically about how many um, issues. Uh, slides that I don't have up here that I didn't include, well, are looking at the morbidity and mortality of our country, of our country's healthcare workforce. If you've seen those uh, slides or those graphs, we spend more per capita on healthcare than any other industrialized country in the world but our morbidity and mortality rates and our outcomes are near the bottom. And it is, that is just, when you see that graph, it just kind of hits you that this is so shocking about the amount and what are we gonna do to move that bar and to switch that, to raise our morbidity and mortality rates. Um, we were at, um, at the conference I was at yesterday, they were talking about population health and they had somebody from the CDC and they were really talking about um, improving and they talked about the morbidity and mortality rates and how we were at the top for spending and at the bottom for outcomes and they specifically looked at obesity and obesity rates which is a marker for you know obviously for health and wellness and they at that time now we'll pick I'll pick on Vermont um, but Vermont was rated as having one of the lowest obesity rates in our country. It was about 25%. Best in our country. And they compared that to the European countries. And with that rate, the European country that had the highest obesity rate was the UK. And they had the exact same percentage as Vermont. So our best state was near the bottom of all the European countries for just that one health marker. And so that was just one example. But the entire morbidity and mortality in our outcome rates are atrocious when you look at the amount we spend and the amount that's spent in other countries. I put these reports up here, the long list of a number of reports that started coming out in 98, 01, 02, and 03. And this is not just focused on nursing, but this is focused on the all health professions. Every single one of them talks about how we need a different educated workforce. They need to be educated differently and they needed different competencies. So here again, we started talking about how do we need to change nursing education? What do nurses need to be prepared to know and do in the future? And obviously the future is now because of these were over 10 years ago. The IOM uh, competencies, core competencies for all health professions are down here. You know, we're talking about patient-centered care, 
interprofessional practice and team building, implementing evidence-based practice, quality improvement, and the utilization of technology and informatics. Also, I'm sure that many of you could add other things to this list, but when we look at what's going on in our healthcare system and has been going on, the aging of the population, yep, I'm afraid many of us are in this uh, demographic here. Um, or many of you may be getting there very soon, but by 2030, look at the number, and the, I bet you this number is low now. This came out a couple years ago. But by 20% of, over 20% of our population will be over 65 by 2030. The increase in chronic illnesses, that we don't just mean the aging either. We're really talking about across the entire age spectrum. Think about the increase in chronicity illnesses in adolescents and pediatric patients. And the need to really intervene, not only to prevent, but have better management. And I can't think of a better place where nursing needs to be involved in addressing this and making a difference in outcomes. The growing diversity of our population, and diversity is defined very broadly, not only ethnicity and culture, but gender identity and those with special needs and disabilities are included in the definition. Global health care. Think about, I think Ebola now is a classic example of how our healthcare system is different and the needs of our healthcare system. You can get on a plane halfway around the world and fly over to another country and be there within 10 hours or less and then get off the plane and if you've been exposed or things that can be transmitted, transported, um, can really impact the entire uh, globe. Biomedical advances. I guarantee those of you who work here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock could name those better than I can. But think about the changes in biomedical um, delivery of care, diagnosis, treatment. And then the new areas of knowledge. Um, for one presentation, I made a list of all the things that needed to be added to the content within a baccalaureate degree a program and the demands on those that are teaching. And you know, the list got long, 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 long. And so I picked out just a few because if you think about the growing demand and the increased knowledge, we can't keep up with knowing everything. If something you teach now is out of date probably tomorrow and a lot of it, if not tomorrow, within a month or two frequently and definitely by next year. So when we talk about teaching, uh, how long, I don't know, and I don't want to point fingers at any of the schools here, but I just know in general how long it takes sometimes to reform a curriculum or re uh, redesign a curriculum, going through the various structures in the committee. <laughs> and also thinking about faculty expertise when we start talking about partnering and who has the most up-to-date information and partnering with those that are in practice. So we need to think about doing things very differently, how we prepare our next generation of providers, and also lifelong learning for those that are in the system, keeping up with what's new in the gen in whether you're in the same practice area or whether you're in a different practice area, and why it is so important to move that education, that mark forward. And then obviously our increasing complexity of healthcare. Healthcare system doesn't look anything like it used to 20 years ago, and the complexity um, all of these things that I've listed, and probably many more that you could, 
have really demanded a different way of educating nurses is what I'm specifically talking about, but definitely all health professions. Uh-oh. I did it now. Okay. Um, talking about the practice environment. I just listed a few studies and a few um, issues that I think have really um, changed the way we educate folks and the way also that nurses practice and what we have to be familiar with. Um, increased acuity. I guarantee that the patients that are in, that were in a med surge unit when I went to school are now at home. There's no way they're in an acute care facility anymore or they're in a rehab facility. Uh, think about the acuity. Very acutely ill patients that are in the home, in ambulatory care sites, rehab, long-term care, definitely acute care, and then even tertiary care, and the, the more, most acute. The accelerated pace of care. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Anita Tucker's study that came out, her first study came out in 2001. She's a business major, she was at Harvard. She has another study now, but her initial study really looked at RNs and, and actually observed RNs practicing and measured how many tasks they did, how many times they were interrupted, um, how long that last, and really what occurred over that period of time. And one of the things that she found was that in an eight-hour shift, and think about now, most shifts are 10, 12 hours, I assume, eight hours, they, a nurse performed an average of 160 different tasks. And each task only averaged about two and a half, almost three minutes. Now that's not very long. She also had a statistic in there about how many times within that time period they were interrupted. So think about how the opportunities for errors, for forgetting things on communication, just the implications, and also not being able to focus on the patient or what the whole situation and what was going on. Um, other things, the need for increased healthcare services. The Affordable Care Act has really increased the need, and as we move forward with implementation, of new and different healthcare models, we're gonna need more and more healthcare providers. And I believe that nursing has a significant opportunity to really address those. But one of the things that I think we should talk about when, you know, later on when we talk about implementation and moving education forward, is they need to hear why nursing should be involved and why nursing should be part of this. Frequently, I hear folks talking about um, needing, you know, that obviously acute care is, we're going to need smaller facilities, at least in the general community. They're not going to be as many acute care. They're, and then uh, somebody that was a financial officer the other day told me, well, we're not going to need as many nurses. And I said, mm, well, maybe not in the acute care facility but we certainly are gonna need many, many more nurses to address all of the healthcare needs across the continuum, whether we're talking about in the home, we're talking about in the community and outpatient settings. 
one of the big issues that I'll probably repeat a couple times and hopefully we can talk about is where are nurses going to be needed and what are they going to need to do and where are they going to be practicing. So as we begin to look at developing an integrated healthcare system with your tertiary care centers as maybe the hub and community centers around, but what is nursing going to be needing to do and how can we do it? Yes. Um, I'm just uh, wondering who you're, when you say they and talk about decision makers, who are you thinking are the decision makers? Um, okay, somebody, the question was who, when I talk about they and decision makers, who are the decision makers that I'm referring to? And I think that I'm talking globally about probably anybody that's in a position to make a decision and designing. Obviously, if you really got down to delineating it. Uh, there are policy makers. Are you talking about legislators? Well, that's who I call policy makers. Yeah, they would be included. So we're talking about legislators. We're talking about institutional policy makers. We're talking about those that sit in the C-suite, those that are on the committees. In the State Department, there are committees. Most states, I know Maryland has one, uh, Vermont has one. I would assume that New Hampshire has one of groups of providers and business individuals and financial officers that are really designing new payment systems, new payment structures, and new uh, actual structures to their healthcare system designing for facilities and how care is going to be delivered. But unfortunately, I obviously I'm passionate about nursing, but I know others are too, and we really need to get the message across that nursing needs to be part of that and isn't the solution to many of the issues that are facing us. Accessibility, mobility, um, quality care, improving outcomes. I've got a lot of, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the evidence of why education makes a difference and why nursing is critical to improving our mor morbidity and mortality rates. So across the board, so they, I think, is kind of a global they, anybody else other than nursing who's not in a leadership position, but we need to be. Did that address your question? Yes, thank you. Thanks. And if you have any other thoughts when we start talking about it, about who they are or who needs to be the decision makers. Mm -hmm. But I get so frustrated. For example, at the conference yesterday, it was the Vermont Hospital Association. And the speakers uh, mostly were physicians. Some of them were other kind um, uh administrators and the conversation was medicine physician medicine physician needs to do this they need to be involved in population health integrating population health designing the health care system and I stood up and I said please don't forget nursing that we are critical and that we need to be part of this conversation and we need to be part of the planning and that nursing traditionally has focused on health promotion and disease prevention which isn't the exact same thing of population health but we also have an extreme focus of trying to enhance. We have our work cut out for us, but that nursing needs to be part of this whole notion about improving the population health and integrating and preparing our providers. So uh, the conversation when you're at these tables and at these conferences is very infrequently focused on nursing, but we need to be. And so it's your job to make sure that the folks you work with you, that you present the business case, that we talk about the statistics, how we can improve quality and outcomes. And you know that's going to be a lot of the focus on 
the rest of my presentation what can we do but we need to know the right language we need to be able to talk about value based purchasing and quality improvement strategies we need to talk about be able to present the data and we need to be able to um, build a business case and that's not something that nursing has been very good at lately and that we haven't prepared folks to do um, so we need you all to make sure that when you're in situations and developing relationships and having communication with various in various venues and with other colleagues that they think about nursing and if there's a state opportunity or an institutional opportunity to be involved in this planning and discussion we need nurses there um, and then some of the other things the realities of the practice environment the fragmentation of care I'm hoping this is improving this is one of the things we talked a lot about when we were looking at what our vision for nursing education is and what do we need to change the increase in handoffs there's a lot of talk about decreasing uh, as far as transitions of care and communication uh, communication gaps and practicing in silos and then obviously the changes in reimbursement the uh, never events that will not be reimbursed and value-based purchasing getting the best bang for your buck and who's going to be providing the care and who gets the best outcomes um, I have to attribute this diagram this was designed by um, Dr. Marge Wiggins who's the vice president of patient affairs at Maine Medical and she did this a few years ago but it was really to depict the complexity of care and yes the patient in the center it looks like they're in a hospital or an acute care facility but I think that patient could be anywhere and she said she couldn't even get all the lines on this diagram she ran out of space um, but it shows how many different specialties departments types of healthcare professionals and others are in impacting the patient and then who's with the patient in the center but the nurse um, I love the statement that says that if you don't need nursing care you don't need to be in a hospital you can go stay in a hotel and you can come back to the hospital but who is the most important person that's the only reason you need to be really in a hospital and that is to have nursing care and monitoring um, so this depicts the complexity and I think that it's a great visual it helps us think about what's going on and then all the ways that the things that impact but where is nursing there were we're the patient in the center of this very complex system and we could move this out into the community and take the patient out of the hospital and still have all of these things that are impacting somebody's outcomes so what is the impact of education and why are we so adamant and um, passionate about this 80% goal of baccalaureate prepared workforce what's the evidence behind it and then also moving to doubling the number of nurses with doctoral degrees um, I know that in 1965 that was the first date that the ANA set for reaching the goal the target of having the baccalaureate degree is the entry into professional nursing practice I remember it well um, 1965 was the first date that was put by their positions on their position statement and um, but I think the difference now is that there is strong evidence to back this up and support it there are many national studies in fact the handout one of the handouts that I gave you that you received 
is an updated list. I think that's on the second page. Um, the first page talks about a little bit about some of the uh, data on the workforce. But on the second page, it actually begins to list. And there's an annotated uh, description of some of the um, largest studies that have been done that really provide the data behind it. So if you're trying to convince either yourselves or your colleagues or others why it is so important to move this mark of baccalaureate education forward, there is, a, um, there is strong evidence. I think the first study that came out was Aiken's original study that looked at the mix and that showed that it was actually the mix, which included an increased number of baccalaureate graduates and master's graduates, and how it improved the morbidity and mortality rates within the state or region. A number of other studies, in fact, Linda Aiken has a brand new study that's coming out. She sent it to us this week, but it has not been released for public uh, dissemination, but that will be added, and that's another brand new study. But these studies, there's a variety of settings, there's a variety of major um, studies here, some from Canada, some from other countries, and many of them from the United States that all demonstrate that an increased mix, a higher mix of education, and or nurses with a baccalaureate degree or higher, there is significant decreases in morbidity and mortality. Some of them are specifically focused on surgical settings, some of them are med surge and others. But if you're making a bulleted list, I wouldn't suggest you hand this to somebody if you're trying to make a business case and they're not a nurse. But make a bulleted list about the evidence and talk about why it is so important. You know, some of the stats and the numbers that they've decreased the morbidity rate by 4.5%. Now that's significant. Um, but this is for you to use. For those of you who are um, listening remotely, <coughs> I will send this electronically to um, Deb and or um, Judith, and they can post this. This is also this list. It's called um, the Fact Sheet: Creating a More High Qualified Nursing Workforce. It is also on the AACN website, so you can access it and download it there. But I will put it, um, send it to um, Judy and Deb, so that they can post it with the slides as an easy access and a, a resource. Um, there is also evidence that, obviously strong evidence, that advanced practice nurses provide high quality care in a variety of settings, either at the same quality or at a higher quality, particularly when you're talking about specific kinds of services. Um, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about APRNs. I'm very passionate about APRNs. I'm involved in all the APRN issues, so if anybody has questions about it, um, I'd be glad to talk about it. But here again, there is evidence that individuals in advanced practice provide high quality care. So when we're looking at gaps in care and access to care and improving our use of resources, I think it's critical that um, we also talk about advanced practice nurses. And there is also growing evidence about a new master's prepared nurse, the clinical nurse leader, that is this individual is making on um, patient outcomes and cost reduction. Um, I have worked with the folks here, actually, um, Mark Splane and Margie Godfrey here at uh, Dartmouth Quality Improvement Institute, and I know that's not the correct title, but that's <laughs> what I call it. <laughs> um, 
Margie and I are good friends, but I've gotten to know her over the last eight or nine years actually in working and focusing on quality improvement strategies and um, outcomes. And the real um, need for nurses prepared to really focus on this quality improvement and interprofessional communication and the evidence that's coming out that shows uh, that they make an impact. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about the clinical nurse leader and the data that's coming out and the evidence. But so after having said all that and talking about the need to advance nursing education and the facts that are out there, the data that supports the need to increase the mix of education, this is our changing vision for nursing education. And they are all parallel and it really impacts everything from baccalaureate to masters to the doctor of nursing practice and the PhD. Um, so that we didn't just focus on one particular area. And for those of you who are in nursing education, you probably feel like that we've kind of blown up the whole system. And, but we didn't leave anybody untouched or any stone unturned. We really have been looking for the last decade across the entire continuum. Um, I talked about, I mentioned that I think we can't just focus on baccalaureate education. And this is my own thinking and uh, opinion, but if we are trying, those who are in leadership positions are trying to make the case and one, be at the table and make decisions we talked about what they need to know, but I think that the credibility with other professionals is extremely important as well. But also, if you're talking to nurses and telling them that they need to have a baccalaureate degree at a minimum and that they need to go back to get more education, I think we would be remiss if we weren't looking at then, and if I was telling somebody that, and I did chose not to advance my education or go back. I think it sends a strong message. <coughs> not only is the content and the credibility and the expertise important, but also then the ability of looking and convincing and sending the message and setting the environment and the stage for why, it's, why is education important and that it does make a difference. So that's my own personal kind of philosophy and why we can't just look at <coughs> increasing the baccalaureate level a percentage in our workforce, but need to look at the entire continuum. So AACN does have uh, statements on each of these. They have um, reconfirmed or uh, put out position statements, but really reflects what um, is happening within nursing education and then hopefully reflected in practice. And that is that the BSN is the minimum education required for entry into professional nursing practice. Like I said, that's the same statement that came out from the American Nurses Association and the target was 1965. Um, master's education should focus on preparation of individuals practicing primarily at the microsystem level, but with higher level and additional knowledge and skills. And this individual prepared with these knowledge and skills or who we're call, we have titled the clinical nurse leader which is really kind of a clinical manager, not an administration management. And then the manager are two examples of what we envision for master's education. And that all advanced specialty education then, or advanced nursing education, should be at the practice doctorate level, which would include the four APRN roles. And that there is significant need for preparation of nurses with a research focused preparation and background. 
in order to advance nursing science. So that is the entire vision for nursing education. And that then goes back to the vision that I put up for the profession um, previously of how we need to get there to reach that vision. Yes? Okay, the question was, I think, let me re repeat this question for those of you who are listening in. Um, there are a variety of entry-level programs in nursing. So the question was, where are we with um, moving forward? I assume you mean, where is our position? What do we believe about those other kinds of entry-level positions? What's our position? And also, legislatively <coughs> across the country, where are we in terms of reaching this goal as having a baccalaureate as a minimum level of preparation? Did I repeat that correctly? Right, I mean, so it, I mean, clearly I understand the tradition of the AAPN in terms of this is what we uh, want as the minimum standard. I'm really more interested in understanding how are we as a nation going to really achieve that? And so clearly, you know, we have many schools in, in our current environment here in rural northern of needing nurses um, you know, in our workforce, and if we could do away with our AP programs, then that would really potentially be a barrier. And so I'm just thinking about that. You know, it's never going to be an easy transition, but is it a transition that we're ever going to be able to make? Okay, the question, the additional comment um, or question was that because we have such a need for nurses and there are a variety of nursing programs, are we ever going to be able to meet the need for nurses without all of these other programs? And how are we going to get to the goal of having a baccalaureate as a minimum? Some of that is I'm going to address in a few minutes, but let me just make a comment about that. Um, <clears throat> you're correct. Our position of our organization is definitely that we believe. And it's not just our organization now. There's a statement that I have a citation for here. It's also in your handout on the fact sheet. But the, the um, American Organization of Nurse Executives, the American Nurses Association, the NOADN, which is the National Organization of Associate Degree Nurses, Community College, Association of Community Colleges, and our association, the American Association of <coughs> Colleges of Nursing, have all signed a statement that we agree that this is the goal, that we need to advance nursing education and that we need to move entry-level education and move the number of nurses to the baccalaureate degree. So that the good news is that all of the organizations agree now and have signed a national um, memo of understanding or agreement, including the organization that is represents the school associate degree nursing programs. <coughs> um, so that at least everybody's talking and the notion, the idea is there, that everybody understands that this needs to be a priority. Now, we also know that, as you said, we need too many nurses out there right now practicing. We understand, meaning we are association, and I assume that other associations do as well, that we cannot possibly produce enough baccalaureate graduates right now 
to address all those needs that are needed for nursing. So that we do need individuals still being prepared at the community college level or in associate degree nursing programs, but the thinking is that we need them to move as quickly forward as possible to get a baccalaureate or higher degree, whether it's a baccalaureate or a master's degree. So that is the thinking right now. Somebody asked me yesterday about the resources. What if we took all of the resources that are now going into associate degree nursing education and put them into baccalaureate or master's entry-level nursing programs? Um, would that work? And I said, well, probably it would certainly address a large part of the issue, but I still think there would be faculty shortages, uh, problems with resources and uh, even classroom space, but faculty would be a huge shortage. Um, there are already shortages for baccalaureate and master's programs. So there would have to be a big shift on how we were producing enough nurses to meet the demand. Um, so we do recognize that we need these graduates there, but we need them to move forward and we need to advance their education. And we can talk a little bit about some of the strategies and maybe how we get there. Not that we have the perfect answer right now, but there are some strategies and things that are going on. <coughs> there are several states that are looking at legislation to mandate, like New York, to mandate that nurses who come out of an entry-level program must have a baccalaureate degree within 10 years. I know that South Dakota, um, was South Dakota, North Dakota, it was South Dakota, I think, a number of years ago was the first state to pass legislation that required a baccalaureate degree. And they ended up rescinding that after so many years, uh, partially because of political pressure, I believe, and some of, I think, being able to meet the needs. But a lot of it was political, uh, I think, in nature. But they rescinded it. Unfortunate. Um, but I think if we have nursing, including the entire spectrum of nursing organizations behind this, and the data is there, we can make the case. We need to push and move this forward, whether we collaborate with our associate degree nursing programs on designing the curriculum and figuring out how they articulate from one to the other and making it as easy as possible and not duplicating one's education but expanding on it and building on what they are, needing to partner and collaborate with um, those who are teaching um, besides a number of other partnerships. So <clears throat> let me go back and talk a little bit about the clinical nurse leader who we believe is prepared, is a master's prepared nurse, um, master's degree or post-master's certificate with a new combination of knowledge and skills to practice in all types of settings or microsystems at the point of care. I said this was a clinical manager. So when we're talking about our vision for advancing nursing education, this is the vision for master's education. There's about 110 programs across the country now, master's uh, prepared <coughs> programs. Um, I know that the University of New Hampshire has one particular program and it is a second degree entry program. Uh, for individuals who are coming back and getting a degree, and then they also get their additional skills. There are many programs across the country that are post-baccalaureate master's programs, um, but the reason I mention this is because it's an opportunity and a need for advancing nursing individuals who want to stay at the point of care 
and really have an impact on quality improvement and this is what i've been working on with the folks at the dartmouth quality institute institute for quality improvement but this is just as part of a description of what the skill set and knowledge set is of these individuals with a master's degree where did this come from it really grew out about ten years ago when we started having conversations with a wide variety of individuals whether they were chief nursing officers whether they we had the director of the state and territorial directors so public health was represented health care administrators physicians individuals from managed care HMOs we had nurses across the board from you know ambulatory care to acute care and the question was what do nurses need to know for the future to address what's going on I listed all those reports and the reports about the errors and the changes in the reimbursement and the changes with our health care system that I shared with you earlier all of that was really pushing us to really think about what we needed to do and they came up with a set of knowledge and skills which became the competencies or expected outcomes of the clinical nurse leader and that title that title may not be perfect not everybody seems to understand it but at the time that was what was landed on for a variety of reasons one of which was because some of the other titles that we chose were already copyrighted by other professional nursing organizations but the clinical nurse leader it's a clinical manager it's not an administrative role and we really see somebody involved in no matter what whether it's acute care ambulatory care school health public health long-term care I know of clinical nurse leaders that are working in all those kinds of settings home care health departments and they are making a significant difference as I said if you look at this list of skills I think you'll understand based on particularly those of you who here are so focused on microsystems and quality improvement and looking at it because usually the nurses that are there at the point of care we talked about the accelerated pace the complexity the need to focus on so to step back and to be able to look at the whole picture to be able to communicate interprofessional communication to actually implement quality improvement strategies and that doesn't mean they do it by themselves but they can empower the rest of the team which includes the baccalaureate and other prepared nurses that are working on or even those that are on the team I've heard of projects that are focused on even looking working with housekeeping that's within an important component of this interprofessional of this care team the second handout that I handed you was just a list it has not been updated but it lists some of the studies that have come out that have been done looking at the outcomes it is only a subset and I will add a couple new studies to that and send it to Deb and Judy but the outcomes that are being realized you can see here reduced length of stay and if you put a dollar figure on that and this is when I talked about making the business case whether we're talking about baccalaureate graduates master's graduates or DNP graduates nursing needs to be able to show how what we do has made an impact if you decrease somebody's length of stay by even a half a day there is a dollar amount that can go on that and it is you know thousands of dollars so think about every time if you put in improvement processes to increase the transitions of care and to increase 
communication. Um, reduced readmissions, um, improved staff retention. I've heard a cost figure that every time when a new nurse leaves a position and you have to recruit and reorient and replace a nurse, that it costs $50,000. I've heard that several times, that number quoted, between 40 and 50,000, but 50,000 has been the consistent number. So think about if you can increase your retention of nurses within your care delivery model, how much money you can save. Um, use of evidence-based practice at the point of care and really looking at outcomes. Uh, improved performance and reimbursement on all core measures and nurse-sensitive indicators. Um, the studies clearly show that where the clinical nurse leader, this master's prepared person, has integrated into the care delivery model and they're used different ways in different kinds of settings, <coughs> they have significantly improved their HCAP scores and all their other um, indicators, if, particularly if you look at the list of never events and what's happening with reimbursement. Um, there is one individual who is a chief nursing officer at one of the HCA facilities uh, in Florida. Some of you may have heard her speak. I've, um, I quote her frequently. Unfortunately, I couldn't pull up her slide to put on here uh, from one of my previous presentations. But she spoke with me at a care transitions conference, which was attended by mostly physicians and healthcare administrators last fall in Texas. And she reported that she had been able to decrease her H, all of her HCAP scores and was keeping most of them at actually 0% across the board for the last two years. So she wasn't able to only get them down, but she was able to sustain the change. And they were all amazed, you know, the, the gasp that went up from the audience when she said that. So we're talking about significant changes that are being made. Uh, she's also been asked to present to the, uh, their board and trustees for all the whole HCA system um, and looking at integrating this across their entire system. Uh, increased patient satisfaction, increased physician satisfaction, and increased nursing satisfaction. These are just some of it. Also, there has been a um, real tie to the magnet status, ANCC magnet status criteria. I understand here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock you're working on recertification and moving forward with that application. Um, particularly the new criteria for the magnet status that have just come out, I understand they are even more closely associated with the outcomes with the clinical nurse leader, the outcomes that have been demonstrated because supposedly they've um, made the application much easier, but you have to identify which data you're going to meet and what target points, and then explain what your outcomes have been and how you've reached them. Um, that's very simplified, and those of you who are probably working on the application could clarify it much better. But that reviewers for magnets are beginning to come, and I know I've heard this for about four years, that they're beginning to ask sites, are you thinking about implementing the clinical nurse leader in your care delivery model? Um, and there are a number of hospitals that have been able to attain magnet status because of that. I put two up here just as exemplars of making the business case because I think it is so important that nursing thinks about this. And we don't. We talk about how we um, improve care, that we're patient, we're caring, we improve patient-centered care. Um, and that's extremely important, and I'm not telling nurses that we need to move away from that. But we also need to be able to put 
a dollar amount when we're going to talk to our ceos, our chief financial officers our trustees, those that make the decision, and our legislators about who makes the decision and where money goes. So this was just one example of a quality improvement process that was initiated by a clinical nurse leader. Um, worked with an identified a need, I looked at, that was working on an orthopedic unit, looked at their um, infection rate, which wasn't high, but you get one infection and you're talking about thousands of dollars. Also the time it spent to auto-transfuse the blood that was during um, post um, having a prosthetic knee uh, put in. Worked with an interprofessional team, looked at the process, was able to determine based on evidence, they eliminated the procedure and then they collected data. They looked at their infection rates, they looked at the time saved, and they estimated that they saved $100,000 in time and equipment say nothing about the infection rate that they decreased over a very brief period of time. Another example that you can make in a business case, um, looking at the outcomes of long-term, anybody over a certain length of time on a ventilator and what could be done, providing, and they came up with a process, this was interprofessional um, team focus, they demonstrated that they were able to decrease their critical care days by 18, over 18%. And if you add a number, dollar amount to how much every single day in an intensive care unit costs, they came up with $800,000 and 40% decrease in returns to critical care unit. That's a significant amount of savings. And here again, I'm not saying that money is the end all and be all, but really when you're looking at acute health care facilities and institutions and budgets, this is how decisions are going to be made. One, if you want to hire more folks. Two, if you want to maintain positions. And that we need to be accountable and responsible for our outcomes, looking at all of the nurse sensitive indicators. So this is really the document that has put out that number and why we have this goal. 80% of the RN workforce, that is the goal by 2020. Whether it's achievable or not, it's a goal. And I think it has created a tremendous amount of discussion and action. The racks that states are developing that are moving forward, I think it's increased the communication among the nursing organizations and others. And it needs to be interprofessional because if everybody isn't on board, we're not and supporting it and moving, figuring out how we move forward, it's not going to happen. I've listed a couple of the other recommendations that I think are significantly important here again. I don't think we can get to that 80% unless we are really work on the rest of them. Nurses should be allowed to practice to the full extent of their education and training. If you're telling somebody that they need to go back and get more education, and they, then they need to be able to change the way they practice, and we need to be able to say what that is. And also, they need to be allowed to practice the full way. Otherwise, we're not going to get the benefit of what nursing can bring to a healthcare system or specific setting. Nurses should be full partners with physicians and other health professionals in redesigning our healthcare in the United States. And here again, we need to be credible, we need to use the same language, and we need to be in the positions. And we can't, we need to step up, we need to be a little bit pushy, I would say, and make sure that we're there. We can't just sit back and wait to be invited. Um, 
to remove the scope of practice barriers for aprns and to expand opportunities for nurses to lead improvement efforts and we need to double the number of nurses with a doctoral degree by the year two thousand and that doctoral degree includes both those prepared with a dnp and with a phd we need both i put this um interactive this is one of the interactive slides for those of you who are familiar who are advanced practice nurses or have been following the implementation of the <coughs> consensus model for aprn regulation NCSBN has been um, one of the partners in organizations in implementing the consensus model since it was finalized in 2008. And I put this up here just to show there are 11 states. They came up with a point system, and not everybody agrees with their point system, but it's a good marker and a benchmark for where states are in implementing uh, the, all the regulations or criteria under the consensus model which includes independent practice, requiring graduate education, um, making sure that the, they require certification and certain criteria for accreditation. But there are 11 states that have fully met their, what NCSBN says is the consensus model criteria. Vermont is one. Now you will see that New Hampshire is almost there. They've got between 75 and 90, uh, what is it, 96 points percentages of the points. And you all probably know where you might be lacking as far as uh, meeting that criteria, whether it's independent practice or what. I know it's not certification. You, every, you, I know you require cert national certification and you require graduate education. I have a feeling it's full independent practice. No. It's not no, no. for prescription and independent practice. I'd have to go back because I thought you did. Anyway, I'd have to go back and look. And so what you need to do then is go look at the map and see, break it down and see why they don't have you as listed. And if you let me know, I'll be glad to share it because we talk all the time with the folks who are doing this. But this is the, mo the kind of the benchmark that we're moving forward with and looking at um, why, about which criteria. Now. That has to be for nurse anesthetists, clinical nurse specialists, nurse midwives, and nurse practitioners. Well, okay, you check it out and yeah. find out where, where they've ranked you down and like, let me know. It looks like it may be reversed. No, I think Vermont has got has too, but we'll, um, anyway, let me know. You don't think so? No. Okay, well, let me know and we'll have it corrected. <laughs> we'll give you credit where, due, where it's due. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this is not my conclusion of my uh, presentation, but it's the conclusions so far in looking forward that the evidence is definitely in that education does make a difference, and I'm saying across the continuum, that nursing is central to healthcare outcomes, and we need to have people recognize that, and that nursing needs to be at the table, partners in the planning, design, implementation, and evaluation of healthcare. So how are we going to get there? So let's talk a little bit about some of the suggestions, the strategies, uh, the resources that may be out there. We talked about the goal. I told you my third goal, this in italics, is my own particular goal. This isn't from the IOM. This is my own philosophy when we're thinking about this, that we need to significantly increase the percentage of nurses with graduate education. Otherwise, we're not going to get to the other two goals. So what are some of the challenges? One, everybody needs to be on board, and I'm not talking about just nurses. 
we've talked about you know nationally the different organizations getting together and sign also need all of the schools and the educators and those individuals in within a state or a region also those that are supporting us the policymakers institutional and state the um, those that are in positions to make decisions that we talked about early also how are we going to incentivize individuals to go back I understand that there is a, a very good tuition reimbursement uh, plan, but um, you know many institutions don't because of budgetary cutbacks have cut back on tuition reimbursement. Um, but if you make that business case and show how you're going to decrease the morbidity and mortality rates and put a dollar figure on that, I don't see how somebody could not possibly support tuition reimbursement. If you're going to really change practice and the way individuals practice, and improve the outcomes. Faculty shortages, we talked about that as something that we is a challenge. And then clinical sites and practice opportunities for students, and then where are the graduates going to be practicing. And I think one of the biggest things is overcoming hesitancy, which may be due to some of these other ones, but people just kind of put it off because it's too difficult. There's no way we're going to get to 80%. Or we're doing okay right now, why change anything? or that it's too costly. These numbers came from the National Sample Survey, just to kind of give you an idea. These data came from 2008, and unfortunately they're that old because that's the last time that the National Sample Survey was done by the federal government to really look at the mix of um, individuals with different kinds of preparation. And you can see how low the numbers are with master's and doctoral education and those are combined, not just separate. So you can see over the three years, um, the light blue on the right-hand side of the graphs are the latest figures. This just shows the number of nurses with a doctoral degree from 2000 to 2008. Um, it didn't go up much, not on this graph, not compared to the number of nurses that are total. And if you figure out the percentage, in 2008, the percentage was somewhere between 1 and 2% had a doctoral degree, and that's it. So we're talking about doubling it. So that's not huge, but when we're talking about the whole pool, it does become a significant number. Uh, this number talks about how long it takes for somebody to go from their entry level to a higher degree level. Um, actually, I was surprised because I thought that to reach the doctorate, when we think about how old some of us are when we graduate from our doctoral programs, I thought it would be much longer than 12.4 years from baccalaureate to a doctoral degree. But um, still 12.4 is not great, and we really need to figure out how we incentivize students that are coming out of the programs, um, you know, baccalaureate programs, selecting students, then really talking about how they need to move on to get their education not requiring necessarily somebody to go back and work for five to ten years before they come back and um, get a higher, a master's or a doctoral degree. Um, yeah, you had a comment, Sue. You know, Joan, I'm, I'm back on two slides ago. I apologize for bringing you back, but you were talking about the barriers at the bottom, and it was high cost um, and too difficult. And, uh, <coughs> I, I, I would add this to your list of um, the bullets above, and that is I think the challenge is we are not accessible to a lot of the associate degree nurses who are trying to come back to us because of cost and schedule. Um, 
and so i i know that's something that our own institution is wrestling with right now but the reason my impression is that one of the reasons we are still seeing really the move and the high reliance on associate degree preparation is because it appeals to adult learners it's accessible they can meet the class schedule and they can afford it and it's hard for again a small liberal arts institution with a fifty thousand dollar a year tuition who runs a very traditional fall and spring calendar with classes monday wednesday and friday from ten to eleven forty to compete with that so i i know that we in in partnership with dr hitchcock medical center always are looking for ways to deal with that issue of cost and accessibility and frankly the administration where we are right now has heard from us that we probably need to go to a year-round calendar not a fall and spring semester type deal so that we can actually graduate individuals not over four years but take the baccalaureate education and make it more streamlined for people to access so i think and i don't think colby soil is alone i think we have lots of work to do as baccalaureate programs to deal with this issue of cost and frankly higher ed as a whole is getting hammered right now on the issue of high cost and not enough access so i just think that's also i don't feel like we can just sit back and say yay someone's going to you know say that baccalaureate entry is where they need to go and funnel students to us i really think we need we need to do something at our level about being more accessible from cost and and i should have given you the mic um and let the folks that are coming listening in remotely because i can't possibly repeat everything but in summary basically the those that are in back nursing education and particularly in baccalaureate education but i would add across the board for all types of education need to look at the costs that are associated with it look at the times when programs are offered accessibility how can people get to the classes access the classes whether they're online or face to face where are they being offered and how and that we need to really seriously look at those factors in order to get more folks to come back to education um, and the speaker was primarily talking about baccalaureate education but here again i would add for all education now i certainly support and i agree with that and I think that um, we need to have a lot of conversations and uh, there's a lot of questions that I hear all the time about um, online programs and I think online programs are a great way to increase the access and the uh, availability uh, whether they're synchronous or asynchronous depending upon what kind I do think though that we get some questions about some of the quality of some of the programs and we need to make sure that we are really providing the resources and the program and the expected outcomes and that there needs to be faculty oversight with those programs and expectations with all of them but i think that's a perfect example of how nursing is stepping up and making some of the programs accessible and you other mentioned something else which is going to get to one of my next slides and that is the need to partner we need to look at all sorts of partnerships whether we're talking about making the programs accessible, whether we're talking about designing the curriculum jointly, we can't just have faculty, you know, designing the curriculum, providing as preceptors or adjunct faculty, uh, they have the content and knowledge. I guarantee that most faculty in schools of nursing are not up to date on looking at big data sets, looking at outcome data, 
teaching quality improvement processes. We do a lot with faculty development, but we're not there yet. We have a lot to do. And um, <clears throat> what's going on in practice? We need to think about it. And the numbers of faculty, the numbers of preceptors. So all those things you said, I totally agree. And I think it goes across the entire board. So let's go back to where we were. OK, this data actually is from New Hampshire. I pulled from our, inter, um, our institutional and data systems. Our organization collects data at the, across the entire board. Schools report to us their enrollments and graduations each year. Um, this data is used not only, and it's available to institutions or to states if they want to benchmark against other types of institutions, uh, like institutions or states or at the national level. It's used by the feds to make policy decisions um, and a variety of um, reasons. Now, obviously, one school for these enrollments and graduations can skew it if somebody, you've added a new school to the program one year or, um, because what I did was I pulled the data from all the schools in New Hampshire to make this graph. So these enrollments and graduations show the difference in the change, percentage change, between the enrollments from 12 to 2013, which is the latest report that we have um, that was reported to us um, between the fall and December of last year, or of this year. Um, so New, New Hampshire's doing pretty well. Obviously, you can look at the percentage change. Um, this is not numbers, but it's enrollments and graduations compared to the United States and the North Atlantic area. Um, this one we couldn't put on a graph because of the disparity and the large differences in the numbers and the percentages. You can see the percentage change of RN to BSN enrollments and graduations. Um, Obviously, this year, 2013, New Hampshire had a tremendous increase in the percentage of individuals who are enrolled in RN to BSN programs. Slight decrease in the graduations of RN to BSN programs. And I'm not pointing fingers, I think, the, you know, but what I put this up there is because I think it's good to benchmark and to look at this. If this became a trend, let's say you had three years in a row where something was showing, whether they were going up or they were going down it's important to then look, just like any quality improvement initiative. If you have a trend, go back and look and say, <clears throat> why is this happening? What can we do to make it different? Or what's causing this to happen? Um, this is master's enrollments and graduations compared to 2012 and 2013 for two years. Um, comparing New Hampshire to the North Atlantic and the United States. And here again, these are percentage change. They're not flat numbers, but it gives you an idea about where you are. So some of the things, let's talk a little bit about getting to the goals. There are a number of position statements out there. National organizations have put out resources. Um, they're listed on your fact sheet. The RWJ, the Case for Academic Progression, which came out last year, that really does list some strategies for how to get to that 80% goal. Uh, there's a joint statement on academic progression that I uh, mentioned earlier that's been endorsed by five national nursing organizations. And then the Tri-Council put out a statement three years ago that really supports educational advancement of registered nurses and the need to move to the baccalaureate level. 
And for those of you who may not be familiar, the Tri-Council is actually made up of four nursing organizations. And don't ask me why. But it's, it's a quadra council, quad council. Um, it is the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. It is the National League for Nursing. It is the American Organization of Nurse Executives. And it's the American Nurses Association. So these statements and documents are powerful tools and in, can be used as you make the case for moving forward and also providing some strategies. AACN came out with a position in 1998. It is looks like it's old, but it has been reevaluated and it is still active and still um, a formal AACN position statement that talks about the need for educational mobility. <clears throat> um, another position statement was the reaffirmation, and I had this earlier, but this is officially, it's posted on our website, that says that the baccalaureate degree is minimum preparation for professional nursing practice. <clears throat> oh, so, so how are we going to get there? Well. I talked a little bit about partnerships, and I would encourage all of you to think very broadly about what we mean by partnerships. Now, partnerships are not just going to somebody like another school or a practice setting and asking somebody, can I send my students over here? We're talking about a true partnership. And one of the things that we've learned from our work around the clinical nurse leader is because we required for somebody to pilot this program to come in with at least one really true partnership with a practice setting. And out of that, it has been such fantastic uh, relationships, uh, development, moving forward, uh, moving nursing forward. We've really then had a whole task force that just focused on academic practice partnerships. And they have a position statement and a number of resources on our website. But academic practice partnerships are critical. Whether you're talking about practice in an acute care facility, whether you're talking about a partnership with a visiting nurse association, with your state health department, all sorts of partnerships. And there needs to be joint agreement. The benefits have to benefit both, the outcomes. They can't just benefit the students or the academic side. Cross-organizational partnerships. What organizations are in your state or region that you need to partner with? Is it the um, hospital association in the state? Is it the um, visiting nurse association? Is it the state health department? Is it um, the physician, the, you know, maybe the New Hampshire Medical Association? Uh, you can find partnerships all over. Is it consumer organizations that advocate, citizens advocacy groups? Um, I would have, encourage you to think broadly interdisciplinary partnerships, academic practice, community partnerships, and very many strange bedfellows. Uh, one of the things when you're talking about interprofessional education and sending the message and you're designing your curriculum, I would encourage you to think about even who, what other schools, and not just health professional schools, but what other schools you could bring in to really help design a curriculum, share resources, um, and really get the message out there because by students learning together, they do learn what each contributes. Let's say uh, the business school or the education program or engineering. I think that's a phenomenal one when you're talking about looking at systems analysis, designing systems, in addition to actually designing physical structures, but I'm talking about designing systems itself. So. We're talking about faculty shortages and other things that's challenges that limit enrollments. 
These were the numbers I took from our last enrollment and graduation report. The reason, the number one, they're not total, just the number one reason for not admitting qualified applicants, you can see the breakdown here. <clears throat> the number one reason was insufficient number of faculty for all programs. Uh, insufficient <laughs> clinical sites. I was actually surprised that insufficient budget or funding was the fourth as the number one. But look at the low percentages that said that was the number one reason for not, for limiting enrollment. Uh, we talk, so, academic practice partnerships, we talked about that. We looked at the faculty numbers um, and the, that was the number one reason and for clinical sites. When you have an academic practice partnership, there's opportunities for adjunct and joint appointments. I would look at more of those. Preceptors, dedicated education units are some of the new models of education. And I would say that most of that has been tested in an inpatient setting, but think about very innovative ones, maybe in outpatient settings for advanced practice nurses or baccalaureate graduates. Uh, new models of clinical training, joint de jointly designing the curriculum. Who has the expertise? Uh, one of the other things that uh, resources, the UHC AACN residency program for transition into practice. This residency is designed, I know many programs have orientations and different versions, but this program has set competencies and expected outcomes. They can be accredited by CCNE. They are 12 month programs and the outcomes are, that they are getting are really phenomenal with increased RN satisfaction and retention rates of now up to 95% for new graduates. Um, and we talked about how much it costs to turn over. My suggestion is in the bottom at the blue, and that is why not when you have an accredited program that's 12 months with specific outcomes expected, why not offer graduate credit, uh, so many credits, for the work that's done, for the didactic and clinical experiences that are actually required. Uh, they have to do a quality improvement project. There's all sorts of things. That would be a great incentive and a way to move forward, people forward to thinking about moving their education. Now that would have to be go through, obviously, the ins academic institution and be approved. <coughs> but I think it's an opportunity. Um, academic strategies, we talked about seamless academic progression and articulation agreements, talking and bringing in and having a conversation and making sure you're not duplicating curricula. Competency-based education assessment is something that is really being focused on at the national level. We're having a conversation around APRN education, but it's certainly applicable to all education. I believe Western Governors uh, University that's actually housed in Utah has done a lot of work at the baccalaureate and the, well, the RN to BSN level looking at competency-based education assessment tools and um, making it evidence-based. Increased use of simulation. There is the brand new study from NCSBN just came out in their latest issue of the Journal of Regulation came out about a month ago. Uh, we've been watching the outcomes but they, are get, they found significant increases in actually scores on content and knowledge with individuals who were prepared using um, up to 50% simulation within their program. Now, the caveat is that the individuals designing the programs and implementing it were very well-trained faculty 
who knew how to use simulation. And that is our concern, that some program will just go out and say, oh, we can substitute simulation, and that there is no standardization for the faculty training and also the types of simulation and case studies and everything that are being used. But this is something that we're uh, really looking at and moving forward. Another suggestion was offering an RN to MSN program. Um, I think one of the biggest barriers is convincing folks that it's going to change practice. And why should I go back and get a, a baccalaureate degree if it's not going to change my practice, if I'm not going to learn anything different? Not that they don't, but many schools are looking at RN to MSN programs and developing them. Let's say an RN to a clinical nurse leader or an RN to an MSN if they're looking at management. The other thing would be a second degree accelerated program. I know you have those in the state here, but those are some of the fastest growing programs and also provide opportunities for increasing diversity within the programs. Um, some of the other things, you know, for those of you who are in academic programs, Nurse CAS provides opportunities that I can talk about to maximize enrollments. Uh, one of the other strategies was creating a graduate core curriculum. And I've talked a lot about this, that individuals, how can we better articulate and make it seamless so people are not, re you know, repeating coursework? So that if you have the master's and the doctoral essentials, looking at developing courses that anybody coming into a graduate program would take, and then they could either stop out and get certified as a clinical nurse leader or in management, or they could go right on seamless and get their DMP, or they could come back later without having to repeat coursework. These are all concepts and things that I throw out there to think about how we're going to get more individuals through uh, baccalaureate and graduate education. Incentivizing nursing. We talked about more pay. That's what most people think about. Uh, tuition reimbursement. But I think the big thing is preparing individuals for different kind of practice, changing their practice, and for a new healthcare system. So my big question is, where are nurses in the future going to be practicing? It's frequently not going to be in an acute care facility. And the question that we keep getting is, are we preparing our baccalaureate graduates to practice in a new healthcare system, in ambulatory, primary care settings, other kind of ambulatory settings, community health, whatever? I personally believe I was approached by a group of RWJ executive fellows, and my answer to that question is I think the essentials have the knowledge and skills in them and that we are preparing folks, but I think we're not doing a good job of showing them how their knowledge and skills are applicable and what these settings are going to be like and how they can apply these skills. So I think those of you who are in education or precepting or adjunct faculty need to help us then be able to say, how are we going to change our education? Where are these nurses going to be practicing? Not going to be in a med surge unit or it's not going to be in an ICU. They're going to be out in the community. They're going to be providing care uh, in a variety of settings. And how can we help them translate that and prepare for those? Thinking about all the things we need that they need to understand. And a little description about, yes, we need individuals with content, but we really need nurses who are lifelong learners, critical thinkers, leaders, and professionals. A couple recruiting tools here for those who are trying to increase the number of individuals, both the diversity and the number of individuals into their baccalaureate and graduate programs. New Careers in Nursing, which has been funded by RWJ, it's winding down in its funding, 
but there are significant tools for recruiting that are on their website that are going to be available. Also, for individuals who are trying to recruit, whether you're in practice or in academia, and you're trying to talk to somebody about whether they're ready for doctoral education or whether uh, a student who might be thinking about going back and getting their doctorate, there's some excellent toolkits here, both for faculty and students, to determine that. There's a brochure that's been put out by NOAD and AACN to help recruit individuals to go from an RN to a, a BSN program. These are all on our website. Brochures that can be ordered, looking at a guide to graduate nursing programs and what kind of opportunities there are, also one for the clinical nurse leader. And that um, document for the clinical nurse leader is not just good for students and potential, but for talking to other administrators and others in practice who may be interested in that you're trying to explain what is this new thing that we're talking about, this new education, and why is it important. Quickly, practice strategies, some of them you're doing, you're seeking magnet recognition. This is a strong recruiter for individuals with higher levels of education, supporting programs, creating partnerships, incentivizing one's education. And I think one thing that we haven't talked about, and I think it's important for educators and practice folks, and that is individuals, unless you have an environment where the expectation is that people are going to go back and that education is important. So here it gets back to you know, setting the stage, the environment, making sure everybody's on the same page. But really the, important, the expectation is that you're going to go back and get higher education. Um, that it makes a difference, that it's valued, and it's recognized. Um, and a couple comments about nursing leadership. Here that has to do with my arg argument for advancing everybody's education and credentials, that we need to be at the table. Unfortunately, I saw a number recently of where CNOs and other nursing leaders were not reporting. They had been moved down in the system and a, that a higher percentage were not reporting to the CEO anymore. So that says a lot about where I think where it's placed, who's at the table, who has the ear of the leader, nursing leaders and how they are being responsible. Now, in addition to that, then nursing needs to step up and be accountable for their outcomes. And we can't uh, step <laughs> away from that, but we need to make the case. Somebody asked earlier about policy changes and the need to develop state and institutional policies that require a nurse to obtain a baccalaureate or higher degree within so many years, or that a certain percentage of the nurse of the workforce within the state or within an institution has to have a certain degree. And then obviously increase the education benefits at the state and institutional level. So I think you've heard these things. I think my concluding thoughts, uh, just to summarize, you can see them that partnerships very innovative partnerships are critical and that nursing is central to the decision making and why we need to advance nursing education and that everybody needs to get involved and be excited. So I apologize. I think we're right pretty much on time, uh, maybe one minute over. I would be happy. I, you know, I know that everybody is very busy, but I would be happy to stay and answer some questions uh, for a few minutes if you have one, uh, either for the entire group or individually. So I am. Um, not will not be um, embarrassed if you have to get up and run back to your other responsibilities. But I, I am available for a few minutes to answer questions if anybody wants to. So. so does anybody have a burning question? Nope. <laughs> it's either lunch. Yes, it's either lunchtime or uh, <laughs> you're all burned out. Yes. Um, I noticed in the sort of um, 
mix of roles and education with the work, the roles of clinical educator and clinical nurse specialist is absent from this dialogue. What's your thinking about preparation for those roles? Because those are, that's work that um, is needed to be done. Uh, one of the things that happened when everybody became APRNs in the 90s is the clinical nurse specialist left the inpatient setting and left us with a carousel for the clinical leaders. And that's still sort of Okay, the question was, for if anybody's still on remote access, what about the preparation and the need for um, clinical nurse educators and clinical nurse specialists? And where, because you didn't see that on any of my uh, presentation and slides. Well, first of all, clinical nurse specialists are recognized as one of the four APRN roles. And we have supported that. We have a statement that it's extremely important and that we need those individuals. And we have worked with the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists and others to make sure that they are included in that discussion and that they're part of that umbrella of APRNs. Um, so we do believe we've also had discussions as we were developing our statement around the clinical nurse leader and describing that role set. As a, and skills and knowledge in comparison and worked with clinical nurse specialists um, to really differentiate the two. So we do support both uh, preparations, both for clinical nurse leaders at the master's level. However, we believe that clinical nurse specialists who are specialists that need spe specialized in, uh, in a particular area, let's say in rehab or gerontology or cardiovascular or diabetes health, which differentiates them from the preparation of a clinical nurse leader but that they need to be available certainly as leaders and complementary to the rest of the team in those areas of specialty. So we do believe that clinical nurse specialists are important and part of the a team. Nurse educators, we have a particular, now if you're talking about faculty versus nurse educators, um, we have a position statement that says our position is that faculty should be prepared at a minimum at the master's level, but preferably at the doctoral level. And that's where the goal should be for any kind of education. And that position is on our website. Our new master's essentials does state, and we recognize that a lot of programs, nursing programs, do have master's degree programs for nurse educators. Um, we recognize that. The key thing about that is that we believe that if they're going to be preparing the next generation of nurses, primarily in associate degree or baccalaureate programs, that they need to have an area of nursing practice, that that preparation should not just be in learning the didactic portion of pedagogies and assessment, but that they need to be able to apply that to a particular area of practice, whether it's med surge or women's health or palliative care or rehab or whatever, gerontology, so that the program must have opportunities for clinical practice within that so that they can then advance their clinical practice beyond what they learned in their entry-level program. That's our philosophical response to that. So we do understand that there's a need for educators, whether they're in an acute care facility or in an institutional or wherever, and faculty. But for master, we prefer that they be doctorally prepared, but we understand and if we also believe that they should have preparation in an area of practice that goes beyond what their entry level was. Otherwise, they're teaching our future generation of nurses based on their entry level knowledge. I, I was recently reviewing the, uh, the master's essentials and found that that to be a really strong comment on, on the master's education requiring the pharmacology. 
We do require what we call the three P content. They don't have to have the full three separate graduate courses that APRNs do, although it's a good idea because if they want to go back and get their education, they don't have to repeat those courses. But at a minimum, they need that content and they need another area of practice that they're focusing on, that they're applying this new content and knowledge for. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon me? Um, the question was, what is, I assume, our position or the thinking around requiring other types of graduate degrees, such as an MBA or a master's in healthcare administration? Well, certainly we need a mix. But I, you know, if you're going to be nursing, practicing nursing, there's obviously a role. A lot of nurses go back and get an MBA and come back. Uh, I would encourage them. And we would like to see them then go on and get a DNP in nursing administration, that they come with a very different perspective uh, if you have a degree in nursing as opposed to an MBA, which is purely a business degree. Not that there's anything wrong and that they don't have um, excellent education and skills, particularly such as in financing and accounting and some of the other you know, communication skills, but that they then are not educated with this background in nursing, and it does make a difference. Understanding nursing practice, understanding, and I'm not talking about the theorists in nursing and necessarily the one-on-one, -on -one, but really thinking about what is nursing, nursing practice, and how can they make a difference specifically in nursing. I, I was thinking more of a Um, well, certainly that would help. Those are not the statistics that were looked at. We need all sorts of education and mix um, so that if somebody, you know, were to go back and get a, I think, I think an MBA or healthcare administration is not specifically going to change the way somebody practices nursing. I think it gives them additional knowledge and skills, but when we're talking about providing nursing care, it's not going to change the way they think and change their practice. Somebody could probably argue with that. Yeah, did somebody have a question? You know, I do. Um, what's your thoughts on, as an organization, the issue of credentialing, and then you get into certifications and nurse, um, clinical specialists? What is my thinking about credentialing and certification? Right, especially I'm, clinical nurse specialists. <coughs> well, obviously, since we are one of the lead organizations and working to right. facilitate the implementation of the consensus model, right. we strongly support the need for national certification. For We support it across the board for where it's offered for any kind of area of nursing, but particularly for all four of the APRN roles, which would include clinical nurse specialists. So they would need certification that certifies them in their role and population, and then if the, potentially into an additional specialty. But if you're familiar with the consensus yeah. model, it yeah. says that you have to have certification in the role in the population. And that's another whole long talk right. about where we right. got from and why that decision was made. And um, remember, this is a regulatory model and trying to standardize education, accreditation, and certification and licensure across all states. Um, and there are a variety of reasons. But yes, I think they need to be certified nationally and they need to be at a minimum certified within the role in the population, and then how we get them also certified in a particular area, I think it behooves them, but obviously that's not a regulatory requirement. 
the consensus model does support specialty certification over and above the um, the role in the population. Right. I think where we get into trouble with the clinical nurse specialist, <coughs> in order to sit for the test, you need to have an academic degree that's focused on that, and at least our understanding is. So if I have a, you know, I'm 55 years old and have a Duke master's degree from wherever, and there just wasn't a clinical nurse specialist program at the yeah. time. Well, you're talking about some of the um, grandfathering and being able to move from one state to another and the requirements right. and the people that are getting caught up in some of the requirements now while we're implementing and in this transition. The intent of the consensus model was to provide a standardized regulatory model moving forward. Unfortunately, when you move forward and wherever people are, some people are getting caught in the cracks and some states are requiring certain things as they move forward. Um, <clears throat> so I know it's an issue. Uh, we've talked a lot about it in all the organizations, individually with NACNS and other organizations with NCSBN. Um, and it is a it is an issue and a problem because the intent of the model was not that folks would one lose their job, whether they're nurse practitioners. We've heard that because nurse practitioners are let's say practicing in acute care and they came out of a primary care program. Well, either there weren't any acute care programs back then, or there were a lot more FNPs or adult geral primary care nurse practitioners than there were acute care, or that they got hired for jobs for whatever reason. So the intent was intent, we talked about this extensively, the intent was not for individuals to lose their job, but rather to address some of these um, issues that were coming up from state boards and others saying, well, you're not prepared to practice in this area, or how can we be assured that you're prepared to practice? So to try and move forward, but there is, as we transition, there is this gap about people who are not eligible to sit for certification. Um, for a variety of reasons, or didn't get certified back when. Um, I'll leave you on that note. <laughs> thank you very yeah. much. So great. thank you. Yeah.